Happy Mother's Day. Thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, uh, on this day, we uh, not only honor moms, but we honor women and uh, their significant and unique contribution here to, to the community and also to the body of Christ. We have a, uh, just a token of appreciation, a gift, a, a flower for all of the women in the house on your way out uh, this morning. So please make sure to grab one of those. That was provided by a flower shop here in our local community called Sprig. They're the best. And so, man, we're just thankful for that. Hey, I, I know it was already in the announcement video, but just let me reiterate, we got Pursuit Chapel coming up this Friday, and it's not going to be here, it's going to be at Bell Chapel, which is pretty close. It's the oldest church building in the city, I think it was built in 1884, and uh, we're going to pack people in there, worship, pray, prophesy, and we're going to... Uh, anoint folks with oil and, and pray for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're interested in that or have questions about that, I'm going to invite you out. Get there early. Make sure you get a seat. And uh, we're going to have a great time there uh, in the presence of God. And I, I want to thank those of you who have been praying and calling and texting and sending messages of support o over this last week. I, I had asked this service in specific to pray for one of our staff members uh, uh, and, and one of the friends here of our house, Brian Gassetta, uh, last week. And, and I should have checked my phone while I was preaching because as I was preaching, right after we prayed for him, my phone started blowing up, just text, calls, and, and I have it on vibrate so I could feel it working, but I just... <laughs> I didn't want to check it in the middle of service. But as we were praying, the doctors went up to his room, checked his levels. They had gone back to normal, and they released him in that hour. And so, anyways, when God's people pray, things happen. And I, I, maybe that doesn't sound like a transformational truth for you this morning, but it ought to be. When God's people gather and pray in the context of a local church, things shift. Uh, Jesus never used the word church because, of course, he didn't speak English and the Bible wasn't written in English. But when they talked about church, they used the Greek word ecclesia, which was a governmental word. It meant the gathering of local officials to conduct governmental business. So Jesus uses that word in a spiritual sense to describe the activity of the church which means when the church gathers with expectation, with prayer, with worship, with honor for the presence of God, we are, inviting, we, we are invited into the, 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 the spiritual work of legislation. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, if you bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven. If you loose it on earth, it's loosed in, in heaven. There's a role that you and I play in the spiritual topography of this region. And when God's people gather and pray, things shift in the heavenlies. And so uh, just a reminder uh, this morning as we go to our primary text in week one of our new sermon series, uh, What Jesus Isn't. In, in our world today, Jesus has become both everything and nothing. And in doing so, we have reduced our understanding of him from a high view of scripture and a high view of Christ or a high view of Christology to really a low view of scripture and a high view of culture. And so we want to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing in the earth today, both in us and through us, through the stories that the scripture tells us about who he is. I tell people this all the time, but if you want to hear the audible voice of God this morning, you can. Just read your Bible out loud. When you read your Bible out loud, you are hearing the Spirit of God who inspired authors to write this story communicate to you about the culture, the heart, and the ethic of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 12, we read an incredible story that helps illustrate some of these greater points. And I want to share that story with you this morning. Starting in Acts 12 and in verse 1, the Bible says this, It was about this time 
that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Let me stop there for a moment. There, there's a man named Eusebius. He was a church historian from the third century. He wrote about this moment of persecution that the church was experiencing. And he wrote that when James was executed, the soldier guarding him at trial was so impacted by James' witness that he too confessed Jesus as Savior and was willingly executed alongside James. And that's why the church historians and the church fathers would say things like this, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The message of Jesus was so transformational that it threatened institutions powers. King Herod was not just a king in a political sense, he was a ruler in a religious sense. In the Roman governmental system, their rulers were viewed as gods, and they acted as if they were. And so it was an act of revolutionary rebellion when God's people would say, there is no king but Jesus. And it, 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 it strikes me this morning that as a culture, we are heading to a place again where it will be a revolution revolutionary act of rebellion to declare no king but Jesus. But let it be known about this community here in Snohomish. We wave his banner over this city and we pledge allegiance to that man who was crucified and rose from the grave. Friend, there is no king but Jesus. There is no power and authority like Jesus. He has the highest name that there has ever been given. And in the heart of God, he holds, in the hand of God, he holds the heart of the king. In the Proverbs, it, it says this, that he moves the heart of the king in whatever way he wishes. That they think that they have power, but it's God who retains the title deed to earth. And so for us, we understand our allegiance to him in that context. But watch what the Bible says in verse 3, because this is where it gets scary. When Herod saw that this act of persecution was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Herod has James executed. James is the first of the 12 disciples to give his life in martyrdom for the gospel. Another 10 will also give their lives for the gospel and martyrdom. The only one that we're aware of from church history that dies of old age is the apostle John. And it's not because they didn't try to kill him. It's just because he refused to die. In fact, the religious leaders and the governmental leaders, according to church history, had John boiled alive in the Colosseum. And he refused to die and he refused to burn. He turned it into a hot tub. And when he wouldn't die, he preached to the crowd that gathered at the Colosseum. And some historians believe that on that day, 30,000 turned to Christ. Acts of courage and acts of obedience shift history for nations. Now watch, watch what happens. When Herod saw that it was met with approval amongst the Jews... He proceeded to seize Peter. We are in the midst of a great cultural test. 
If the church approves of persecution, interference, or restriction, it will only embolden an already antichrist system. There is a subtle lie that people fall under. If I just comply, everything will go back to normal. But friend, nothing could be further from the truth. We don't negotiate with darkness. We stand against it. We don't bow to Babylon. We confront it. We don't serve the state. We serve Christ. Let me say two things on opposite ends of the political spectrum, and please don't get offended. If you talk more about the second coming of Trump than the second coming of Christ, you're part of the problem. Okay, now let me offend everybody else. If you quote more from the CDC guidelines than you do from Scripture, you're part of the problem. We are a people who are allegiant to Christ and committed to his bride, the church. The government should not infringe on the right of people to gather and has no business creating obstacles, hurdles, barriers for people to gather in faith-based environments. And for us, we find the courage to be a voice of truth to power. And can I tell you, there's something that concerns me about some of the revival movement, because sometimes I hear people attaching the word revival to political outcomes. Like if we could just get our guy in office or that guy out of office, then all of a sudden the nation will have revival. Can I tell you, friend, this morning, revival is entirely not dependent on who's in the White House and entirely dependent on who's in your heart. Some of the greatest revivals we see in history come under some of the worst political leaders that there have ever been. And so if you think things are bad, just wait, because when things are bad, it's the light of Christ that shines best. See, my hunger for revival cannot be satisfied by a lower tier political outcome. Because see, politics is downstream, but kingdom is upstream. And when you win the war for the kingdom, you get everything else. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. So I don't seek political outcomes in order to create spiritual solutions. I seek the kingdom and understand that when I get the war won on the top layer, it impacts the bottom layer. And so for us, we're people who vote according to values have a worldview that's framed by Christ. You ought to vote in accordance with the convictions of scripture. This is not anti-political. I spent 10 years in government. I worked for the beast. (laughs) But my concern is when people attach spiritual breakthrough to some sort of lower tier voting position. Our God was not voted in and he will not be voted out. He is not up for popular approval. He's not even up for reelection. He is not impacted by the polls that the media puts out. He doesn't care what your atheist friend on Facebook says about him. God is not moved by what moves us. So I am unrattled by the political system we are in. And I refuse to bow at the golden statue that Babylon sets up. So if you want to throw me in the fire, that's fine, because that's when the fourth man, the one like the Son of God, appears in the midst. So we're going to be people who lend our voice to courage and boldness in this hour. Do you know how approval is gained in our culture today? Through silence. That's the primary avenue that approval travels on, silence. If you don't say anything, then they won't come after you. It's like negotiating with an alligator so you can be eaten last. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Come on, just bow. 
Come on, just don't worship. Come on, just don't sing. It's not a big deal. Come on, just don't gather. Come on, just who cares? You, you go to church at home. Just, you know, just, it just doesn't, just bow, just bow, just bow. Just, just a little bit of compromise. Come on, just bow. But the problem is the bondage felt from compromise is too small to feel until it's too large to break. So we're going to be people who say, hey, listen, heat up the furnace. Make it a little hotter. That's fine. But we're going to be people who gather because we serve Christ. You know, the two most contagious things in any environment are faith and fear. And we got to choose what type of people we will be in this hour. We'll be people who speak faith, who spread faith, who declare faith. And even if you feel like this morning, all you got is a mustard seed, I got really good news. A mustard seed of faith moves a mountain of obstacles. You don't have to be a hero of the faith. You just got to be a peasant who's found bread. Well, pastor, I just don't know. I'm down to my last drop of oil. You're in a great place. Because what happens when you get to the end of your rope, you tie a knot, you hang on, you realize Jesus is all I had this whole time anyways. And in his love and in his grace and in his work of sanctification, oftentimes he removes some of the safety systems that you set up so that you can reaffirm your total alliance on what he provides. We're in a lifelong process of transformation and development and we're not giving up now. In verse five, friend, we didn't come this far just to come this far. It's not like, cool, we got a full service at 1030. That's awesome. Oh, that's just great. Let's just coast here. Let's go into cruise control. We are in a lifelong pursuit of the beauty and brilliance of Jesus Christ. And I believe that there is a coming movement that's going to mark church history where churches redevelop their entire ecclesiology around presence-driven ministry. We're going to get into the presence of God. We're going to minister to him first. And after we have first ministered to him, then we understand that he ministers to us. But we're going to build our entire organizational system around a desperate pursuit of the presence of God. It's amazing what the American church has been able to build without the presence of God. And a lot of it looks like dry, dead white wineskins. A lot of it looks like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. It looks like a lot of people gathering just to pay the electrical bill without any courage to take a city. It looks like a lot of people showing up for a halfway spiritual TED Talk, some dead worship karaoke, thinking they're making a difference in the world around them. No, we owe the world an encounter with God. That's what you owe. How do I love my neighbor? You owe them an encounter with God. What do I owe my family? An encounter with God. You owe your children's children a church that's focused on the presence of Jesus and will settle for nothing less than an unmitigated outpouring of his spirit in this hour. That's what we owe. It's a debt of gratitude to those who came before us. No, I got to run further than them. I've got to run further than those who came before us because that's how I pay them back. We are relentlessly pursuing and outpouring in this hour. And watch, if we lift Jesus up, he draws all people into himself. You know the greatest church growth strategy that there's ever been? A people who are dedicated to pursuing the presence of God. Because when people find out that there's a community pursuing the presence of God, they walk in these doors and they say things like this. I didn't know there was living water in this region. Oh, I didn't know it was like this. I didn't know there was fresh oil in the house. There's been a longing in my heart to experience this and I didn't even have words to describe it. But now that I sit here, I found out that I am home. And friend, that is not to our credit, that's to his credit. God has found a place where he can rest. We don't just want a visitation. We want to create a resting place for the king of glory to move in. Because when he does, watch, the train of his robe fills the temple. 
That doesn't really make sense in our culture today, but when I think of the train of his robe filling his temple, it's language from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that I cleaned my vision from political leaven, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the Bible says the train of his robe filled the temple. The picture that I get is when Princess Diana got married and it was televised worldwide. Y'all remember her train that went so long down that center aisle? Isaiah's vision, watch, is that the train of the robe fills the church everywhere it goes. You know what's awesome about that? Fast forward to the New Testament where the woman with the issue of blood presses through the crowd to grab a hold of the hem of his garment. It tells me this morning, regardless of where you're sitting, regardless of what your story has been, regardless of what struggles you have, you are just one grab away from the hem of his garment where everything changes in your life it's available for you because his robe it fills this place it's available for you well I haven't lived perfect neither have I I'm struggling with doubt join the club I got a little insecurities okay me too but we are just one grab away from an encounter with anointing that changes everything about us and I'm not gonna rest until the train of his robe not only fills this place, but fills this region. Now watch, let me preach. Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. It's almost as if we have power when we spend less time talking about our problems and more time talking to God. Sometimes we become impressed with the size of our own dysfunction because we think it makes us unique. And so everywhere we go, we tell people about the size of the baggage that we're carrying and all the things people have done to us and said to us and all the ways that we've been hurt. And I'm not trying to invalidate your story. I'm just letting you know this morning, when you start talking to God about his power and, 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 and not spending so much time talking about your problems, all of a sudden you come into agreement with breakthrough that flows through your life. God's not impressed with your mountain. He raised Jesus from the dead. Nothing is impossible for him. Where two or three gather and agree, touching anything, they can consider it done. This is the kingdom coming to earth in this hour. The manifest, manifold presence of God, the weight of his glory that comes upon his people in an atmosphere of faith by which you truly begin to believe that he is as good as scripture says he is. Nothing is too hard for this God. We spend so much time telling God about the size of our problems. We miss out on the mustard seed of our miracle. So Peter was thrown in prison, but the church prayed. But the church prayed. The ecclesia, the government of God gathered to legislate business. I want you to think about Sunday mornings like the gathering of a city council. And each of you are city council members. And we're all sitting around a table and we're coming into agreement with what the king of the universe has declared about our city and our region. So Peter was in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. Watch, the Greek word for earnestly is ektenos. It means extended out to its necessary and full potential. The Greek word ektenos is a medical term describing the stretching of a muscle to its limits. The theologian, last name Guzik, says it like this. Much of our prayer is powerless because it lacks earnestness. Too often, we almost pray with the attitude of wanting God to care about things that we really don't care too much about. But scripture says it's the fervent prayer of a righteous person that availeth much. Meaning there's something connected to our passion that pulls a response out of heaven. And those prayers aren't fancy. 
Those prayers often are accompanied with emotion like tears or shouts of joy or prophetic declarations or proclamations. But when God's people gather in earnest prayer, all of heaven peers into the affairs of man. The Bible says they didn't just gather for any old prayer, but earnest prayer. God, I tell you, if I wind up in the hospital, don't send me weak-kneed intercessors. Don't send me people praying nice little prayers. Lord, just take them home. Let's unplug them. He's just... It's a sprained ankle. Don't unplug me. I'm be okay. Come on, send some people who've grabbed a hold of the hem of his garment. Send some people who earnestly and fervently cry out to God for a miracle in their life. Send some people who've been trained on the battlefield of prayer and prophecy, who know what it's like to come into an agreement with an all-powerful God to do something in our finite world. It was the earnest prayer, a muscle being stretched to its natural limits. See, prayer is a muscle that you build. And it's built through resistance training. And it's built through pressing in. And it's built through praying for things that you don't always see happen right away. And God is not some sort of cosmic vending machine by which you deposit 25 cents of prayer and get out a bag of chips that you can eat on your way to church. Because God refuses, watch, to be reduced to a transactional deity. Instead, he is a relational father. And God, as a good father, knows that there are often things that we pray for, that we got to walk through seasons of process so that we can be ready to bear the weight of responsibility when they come. It's easy to say, you know, God, I, even when I don't see it, I know that you're working. But, you know, when we get home and we're praying for those things that we have not yet seen materialize in the flesh... That's where rubber meets the road, where we ought to make some faith declarations. God, I don't see it, and frankly, I'm unhappy about it, and where are you working, and what are you doing, but I'm going to trust you in the midst of my mystery. You know, sometimes people think the longer they follow God, the more answers they have. Wrong. The more you follow God, the less you know, but the more you experience. Because following God is an invitation into pursuing the mystery of his presence. And if you're looking for answers, you signed up for the wrong thing. What we're looking for is to walk with a Savior who walks with us through every season of life. Friend, God does not just wait for you at the end of your finish line. He does not wait for you at the end of your development. He does not wait for you at the end of your miracle. He walks with you through every season of life. And both past, present, and future bow in reverence to the sovereign design of who God is. Which means this. All at the same time, God is repairing my past, empowering my present, and securing my future. Now watch what happens. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. I want you to see what's happening here. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping. Believers must learn the art of not losing your peace in the midst of anxious situations. Friend, the power of God is not just seen in your outcome, but in your ability to manage your spirit while you're waiting for the breakthrough. If I can sleep through it, I can have victory over it. Watch what James says in James 1 and in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and now let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Friend, that is the goal of God for your transformation, 
mature, complete, not lacking anything. But you don't get there until you can consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. That is the necessary stepping stone towards maturity. I can't lose my faith when a situation doesn't go my way. I can't lose my peace when everybody is at anxiety around me because I have a gift from God that didn't come from the world and the world can't take it. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, I leave you with the gift of peace. When it's a gift from God, the world can't take it, but God will allow you to give it away. And so for us, we guard the things that God has given us as treasures in our heart, as resources in our life. And I just love that it's the night before trial. Peter just saw what happened to James. James' head was cut off. He just saw it. Now, Peter is in prison. He's probably been there for a number of days. He's awaiting trial. Why God doesn't show up on the first day, I'm not sure. Why God doesn't show up on the second day, I'm not sure. But I believe that God is probably developing something deep in Peter that is undevelopable until somebody walks through a process of waiting and believing God for a miracle. What if the real miracle in your life was not receiving what you're praying for, but becoming the type of person you do along the process? Well, God, I never, I never got my miracle, but yeah, but you're, you're mature and complete, lacking nothing. That sounds like a pretty good trade-off. Peter's breakthrough came the night before trial. Just because you haven't seen it yet doesn't mean you won't see it soon. Verse 7, watch. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. He said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Now Peter followed him out of prison. Watch. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Let me stop there for a moment. One of my favorite Bible verses of all time comes from John 13 and in verse 7, where Jesus tells his disciples, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter had no idea what the angel was doing, but when God is in the room, I don't need to understand in order to obey. You ought to decide what altar you're going to bow at. Because if you bow at the altar of your understanding, you have reduced Christianity to humanism. And we serve a God who is continually confounding our understanding. In fact, Scripture says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are, are not always our thoughts. His priority and his prerogative is far above. It's so interesting to me that we all want a peace that passes our understanding, but so often we struggle with worshiping a God who surpasses our understanding. And if you can learn to trust God in the mystery, what you're saying is I don't bow at the altar of my intellect, but instead at his wisdom. The Bible says there's a way that seems right, but it leads to destruction. But there is a narrow road and Jesus is the door and that road leads to eternal life. And so for you and I, as we process what it means to be a believer in this hour, we recognize that God often will do things that completely confound our mind. And in doing so, we're going to trust him and choose to trust him every step of the way. Can I tell you, friend, for you, the greatest argument against death is an unfinished assignment? In your life, the greatest argument spiritual argument you have against death is an unfinished assignment. There's more work for Peter to do. The first one-third of the book of Acts is about Peter. 
The, the last two-thirds of the book of Acts are about the Apostle Paul. But there was more work for Peter to do. Now, Peter would be martyred, but it wasn't going to be in Acts 12. He would face the martyr's sword. He would be crucified upside down. He would give his life for the sacredness and the significance of this gospel and the one that he followed, Jesus Christ. But in Acts 12, his time was not yet up. And I would venture to believe this morning that there are some people here today who've got unfinished assignments. And I want you to know as long as you have an unfinished assignment in your life, you have the commander of angel armies at your back. And there is no death, no sickness, no hell, no grave that can hold back an assignment that God has placed on an individual person. Peter had an assignment, so do you. The Bible says in verse 10, they passed the first and the second guards and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. Watch, it opened for them by itself and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then all of a sudden, Peter comes to himself and he says, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. Friend, let me stop there for a moment this morning. Doors open because people knock. But in verse 10, it says something so interesting. It says the iron gate to the city opened by itself, which tells me this, God has already been knocking on some doors on your behalf, and all he needs you to do is show up, and when you do, the door is opened unto you. Can I tell you one of the most important and significant spiritual disciplines that you can develop in this season? The art of showing up. The future belongs to those who show up. I love how Peter's in this like pseudo trance vision. He's wiping the sleep out of his eyes. He doesn't really know where he is. He thinks he's having this really cool dream about God's deliverance and doesn't recognize that what he thinks he's dreaming about is actually happening in real time. You're gonna get to heaven and recognize that your life was so much more supernatural than you gave it credit for. I'm telling you, while you sleep, God does his best work. There's been times where you've had dreams that felt so real to you because they were. Because even while you slept, the God who ordains the universe is doing a sovereign work in and through your life. I love how an angel strikes him on the side. Peter, get up. Sleeping over here. All of a sudden, the chains fall off. He takes him by the hand. All of a sudden, Peter kind of wakes up and realizes, no, this is actually happening. This is really happening. You know, sometimes I have that experience in this church. Every once in a while, I go, oh, we got a real church. Oh, like this, this is a real thing. It's not just a dream. It's not just a vision. It's not just an item in a prayer closet. The things that I have saw in the spirit, I'm experiencing in the flesh. Peter wakes, angel wakes Peter up, says, walk with me. And they get to the iron gate of the city. I love this. And it opens by itself. And what I felt in my spirit as, as I was reading Acts 12 
is that we so significantly undersell how many times God has gone before us to knock on doors that when we show up, they open unto us. Friend, before we ever planted in this city, there was a God who was knocking on the iron gates to this region. Before we ever got here, he was making a way where there seemed to be no way. Before we ever arrived, he was turning the hard soil of the Northwest. Before we ever showed up, God was riding in on the prayer and the agreement of his people, getting ready to swing wide ancient doors and open wide ancient gates. The iron gate to the city opened by itself. Because there's a competitive advantage that believers have in the world that we live in today. And that we understand that we serve a supernatural, powerful God who is working on our behalf. But when Peter goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, he has to knock on that door. And the Bible says when he knocks at the outer entrance, a, a servant named Rhoda hears Peter's voice. And she was so overjoyed, she ran back without even opening the door. She exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Watch, watch what they tell her. Watch the great men of faith, the disciples, the one who have seen the resurrected Savior, the stronger vessels. Watch what they say. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. <clears throat> it's okay for people to make assumptions about you being out of your mind because one of the best places you could be is out of your mind and into his. They answer the door. Rhoda say, no, Peter's here. I, I, I legit, I saw Peter. I heard his voice. It's the same thing that these disciples see when the, the women go to witness the resurrection, the empty tomb. They run back and tell the disciples, he is not here. He is risen. They think you're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're too emotional. You're not thinking straight. You're not processing right. Can I tell you, friend, don't allow somebody... Elsa's lack of belief to somehow frame in the way that you understand who God is in this hour. It's okay if not everybody agrees with you. It's okay if not everybody affirms that you've heard the voice of God or recognizes the gifting that he's placed on your life. Man, what God is doing in this place, the things that he's placing on people here in this community, they're not up to popular votes. Aren't you glad that your critics don't get a vote on your destiny? Aren't you glad that the sum total of your life is not just your worst moments? That we serve a God who redeems, who saves, who walks in the night before trial. The bridegroom who comes at midnight, who wakes us from our slumber and says, now it's, it's time for breakthrough. The God who goes before us and knocks on doors. Doors of relationship, doors of abundance, doors of opportunity, doors of resource, doors of healing, doors of breakthrough. He's already been there. He's already been where you're going. Your journey does not surprise him. He's already been in every city you'll ever walk into. He's already gone before you into every circumstance you will ever encounter. And that's why he tells his disciples, I give you the Holy Spirit that you know that I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, God's already been where we're going and he's been knocking on a door and people without even recognizing it have heard the knocking of the Lord. And when you show up, that door gonna be open unto you sometimes we get impressed with our own skill set like oh look these doors they're just flying open 
man, I must be really talented. I must be really gifted. I must be God's favorite. No, God in his kindness has gone before you. It has very little to do with how talented you are or how many gifts you've got or how smooth you can talk or how great your network is. No, God has gone before you. Disciples are still filled with fear. They think, man, there's no way. Rhoda's crazy. She's nuts. It can't be Peter. You're out of your mind, they told her. But watch. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Maybe my favorite five words in all of Acts chapter 12 come from verse 16. But Peter kept on knocking. And Fred, I've got a word from God for someone here this morning. You ought to keep knocking because God isn't done working. And you know what Jesus isn't? He's not done working. He hasn't somehow run out of power. You're not an exception to the rule. God has somehow not overlooked you or the significance of the moment you're in. We serve a God who is as alive and well as he's ever been. He has taken no days off. He is not straight, stressed out or anxious or depressed, but filled with power and courage and ability to perform a miracle in your life today. But here's your responsibility. You got to keep on knocking. See, some doors open because God's already been knocking. And some doors open because as an act of faith, you put your hand on that door and you keep knocking until the persistence of your faith pays off. Come on, friend, you believing for a miracle this morning? You got to keep knocking. You believing for breakthrough in your family? I am pleading with you. Keep on knocking. You believing for God to do something in your circumstance, a healing in your body, a turnaround in your life? Friend, I implore you today by the mercy of God, keep on knocking and the door will be opened unto you. I'm knocking on this region. I'm knocking on some iron gates that lead to some gateway cities. I'm knocking here in Snohomish and Everett, Mill Creek. I'm gonna knock in Seattle until a door gets open. I'm gonna knock on every city that God has given this church as an inheritance for influence. And I know that I don't always get the response I want when people come to the door. It's Russell, no it can't be. It's Pursuit, no it can't be. God's doing something in that city, no, nothing good can come out of Snohomish. I know that there's a lack of faith that causes something to die inside the heart of a believer who hasn't tapped into persistence. But what if today we could take resistance as a sign that we're pointed in the right direction, not the wrong direction? What if today courage could stir in your heart? I'm gonna keep knocking until God answers. It's the parable of the persistent widow who went before the judge asking for justice. And day in, day out, her request was denied. But all of a sudden, on one day, she showed up and with a similar petition and with a similar prayer and with a similar earnestness, she knocked on the door of justice until the judge granted her request. What if today, persistence is one of the primary ingredients that God uses to develop an earnest prayer in your life. What if God is inviting you to keep on asking, keeping on seeking, keeping on knocking, so the door would be opened unto you? Friend, don't give up.
because there's a lot of things that Jesus is. But if there's one thing that I know for sure that he's not, is he's not done working in your life. Come on, would you stand as we close this morning?